Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Mob rule, mob mistress, king of the mob, dragons of crime, Undercover. Those are not lesser-known Elmore James novels. Those are true crime books, nonfiction, about organized crime in Canada, written or co-written by James Dubrow. Dubrow is a career crime writer and documentary filmmaker. He is a former producer at the CBC's Fifth Estate, former president of Crime Writers of Canada, also a former landlord and former rare books dealer. And James Dubrow will be with me in a moment. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Allison Creekside, Victor, Karen Routledge, Greg Cauley, Stephen Noble, Lee Elliott, Andrew Russell, Matthew Douglas, and Dalton Holloway. Dalton, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I believe that there needs to be more voices speaking to the Canadian perspective, and Canada Land provides that extra voice and I'm willing to put my money. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. 
And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Got it. This episode is also brought to you by FreshBooks, painless billing cloud accounting with FreshBooks.com, the original sponsor of CanadaLand, a very useful service that saves me time every month. Use it freelancers and small business owners to invoice, to track your expenses, to send bills, to get paid quicker. FreshBooks.com slash CanadaLand. You can use it for free for a month. And if you do sign up to be a paying customer of FreshBooks, tell them who sent you. You'll be helping the show. Thank you to FreshBooks. The Mob is not an organization that takes uh, very kindly to people exposing their inner workings. Why are you still alive? <laughs> you know, it's funny you should ask that question. That was the very question uh, when I was on my first book tour in 1985 for Mob Rule that that wonderful guy Webster asked me. Remember that wonderful Scottish accent? Tell me, James, bro, why the hell are you still alive and it was live television? <laughs> the mob doesn't like journalists and the mob doesn't like gay men. They, they kill yeah, homosexuals in their own right. Well, that's a, both of them are kind of myths. They use journalists, of course, and yeah. they play the game. They, what they don't like is gay mobsters too much in right. the mafia. In their own ranks. Right. And, in fact, the reason that Charbonneau was, was shot in 73 was he'd written about Frank Catroni having a bisexual side, which he did, uh -huh. but that was a no-no. He was getting into his private life. They don't right. mind the reporting, and it helps them in the it helps them in their communities to say, hey, that's me. A lot of people bought Mob Rule and say, hey, I'm in this book. I remember just, I, I, I know so little, but just Tony Soprano watching himself, you know, there's a sense of that, that there's no greater consumers of Mob, you know. Them. Oh, yeah, they, they borrow. Media, literature, movies. They borrow from the pop culture. I mean, there's a very famous assassination um, in Canada of one of the leaders of the Sicilian mob being assassinated, leaving uh, a showing of The Godfather in some theater. So they, they try to imitate that. It, it's, it's uh, what's the word, symbiotic relationship? Yeah. yeah. You know, the thing they really are concerned about is if you get into their personal lives, 
their wives or their lovers. Um, same with the bikers. They, they're, they're pretty much used to it. The, the general rule is with all these groups that they're all organized is you don't go after reporters. You don't go after cops. Yeah. That's why very few cops are ever bothered. Very few reporters are ever – think about it. Have you ever been bothered? Mm, not terribly. I mean I've got a few threatening phone calls. Uh, one guy jokingly said I should be sleeping with the fish, you know, and I had another threat once from a historical book, strangely enough. I did a book on Rocco Perry. He was very big. I mean, he was the first major mafioso leader in this country uh, outside of Montreal. And in Montreal, uh, there's no indication there was anyone that big. And what do you mean by big? Because don't, don't want to go back to the beginning of bootlegging? Or wasn't the, it's It was all... bootlegging that did it. He, he started earlier. He, he came from Italy uh, around the turn of the century, a little, a little after the turn of the century. And uh, he was involved in hits and, and other things. And he hooked up with this Jewish lady named Bessie Starkman. Mm-hmm. And they became quite the team. She ran the prostitution. He ran the uh, thing. And then they both decided to get into bootlegging when, when the uh, booze was, you know, um, prohibited. Mm-hmm. And she then dealt with the corruption, and she was one tough lady, boy. She was murdered in the most sensational mob murder ever, but that's a whole other story. In what 19- happened to the Jewish gangsters? There used to be— Well, it's interesting. Now, she wasn't—she was a Jewish gangster, but she was really—her power rested being the spouse, because back in those days when you were common law, you were really the spouse. Yeah. Some, uh, her, her, actually, her grave, which is in a Jewish cemetery in Hamilton, says, Bessie— Perry Starkman on it. Uh-huh. And then somebody tried to wipe out the Perry. Uh, she was assassinated in her garage by um, two hitmen from Rochester, and they never convicted anyone of it. And more people came to that funeral than any other mob funeral ever because the Canada Games were going on in, in um, Hamilton then. So spectators were everywhere, and Rocco was almost pu- pushed into the open grave. And the reason for that is she had hooked up with Anna Rothstein in yeah. New York for her drugs. She saw the next thing as being heroin and drugs. So she was getting drugs from Rothstein's gang. So we're talking way back then. Yeah. Rothstein was already dead by the time she was killed, but she still owed money. Yeah. And the story coming from our informants then, and I take that with a grain of salt then as I do today, was that she laughed at these guys who came to collect the money. Well, Rothstein's dead. Why should I pay it, you know? Uh-huh. And they said, well, there'll be serious consequences. And then she was murdered. So, never, never solved, never solved. But what happened to the Jewish gangs? They're still around. I mean, they're, they're, back in the 20s, there were major Jewish gangs in Montreal and Toronto, for sure. They were muscled out by some of the Italians. A lot of them, you know, so the whole thing of becoming legitimate, the Bronfmans, yeah. who were not professional criminals, but who worked with criminals, they just became legitimate. So the second and third generations are totally wonderful, you know. I mean, the philanthropists, what have you. Well, yeah, that book, uh, Tough Jews by Rich Cohen, he talks about the big difference was the Jewish uh, gangsters, they didn't want to pass it down to their kids. Yeah, so I think that essentially that's true. And also they weren't as, okay, the nice thing about the Italian mob as organized by Lucky Luciano and all that is it became, and even going back further, it became a family tradition. You know, you're born into the mob. Basically, though, prohibition was the big, big heyday, even in Toronto here. There were, there were tons, and, and a lot of them were absorbed by Rocco. Rocco Perry took in all sorts of people. Paul Volpe had a multicultural mob. Uh-huh. He was the last mafia boss in Toronto. He, he uh, 50s and 60s, 70s, and was murdered in uh, Still Unsolved Murder, November 13th, 19. 19- 
83. His body was found in his wife's um, company car. No one's ever been charged with that murder. No one's even been charged, let alone convicted of that murder. There's a lot of unsolved murders in organized crime. And no one ever bothers to follow up on these things. Do you like these guys? Mm, I can't say. I like some of them. Uh, I, didn't, I don't particularly like... I shouldn't say that. Uh, Chuck Yanover I've met many times, and I would call him an acquaintance. Um, you say that... But uh, I never trusted him because he was a con man. A, yeah. a chapter in my book about him is called Con Man Extraordinaire, and it's not flattering. Yeah. And yet, when I first met him, he wanted copies of the book, and he wanted to give it to every new girlfriend. Well, these guys are, you know, there's criminals and thugs. The culture glorifies them. They are very involved in glorifying themselves. Their their interest in, look, why if you're a criminal for your career, why would you speak to a journalist? It's because you want to, you want that status. The same reason why I guess any celebrity would talk to a journalist. So, right. I want to I want to know more about your role because um, there is this like um, almost to the level of like Star Trek trivia where people are obsessed with these guys. Yeah, I know. And uh, you have you have to have at least I don't know if you like them or not, but you have to at least find them engaging enough to spend. Uh, engaging is a good word. I like that. I mean, I find a lot of them interesting and engaging. And they and they use you. You say they use. Journalists. Yeah, I mean, one I'm very close to uh, for many years is Cecil Kirby. He was a hitman for the uh, Camiso family. Uh, Cecil called me a couple months ago and uh, six or eight weeks ago and told me that he was going to give Peter Edwards of the Star a story about how the RCMP didn't uh, protect him at all and they were the worst people in the world, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. In other words, how the witness protection program, he was the first on it, totally failed him. You did a story with the Fifth Estate in the mid-'80s. We had a, a disguise for him, but we didn't change his voice which is crucial. The skies wasn't great. And incidentally, they weren't supposed to rebroadcast without contacting Cecil. Uh, and usually they do that through me, right? And in fact, I had a call a couple of years ago from Bob McEwen of the Fifth saying that they wanted to do an update on him. And so I set it all up and then I never heard anything. And then they just ran this item as one of Bob's best stories, but without telling us. Mm-hmm. So suddenly the day after that, the day of it really, Cecil got calls uh, people recognized him. Yeah. His voice particularly. And he his, his, his life was seriously endangered. The CBC exposed your source? Well, I can't say they exposed it because we did it back in 84. Yeah, why wasn't he exposed the first time around? It just it just luck of the nobody knew? Well, know. at that point it was too early and he wasn't living where he's living uh, and he didn't have a family and kids and all that. So he's been in witness protection for 30 years. Right. More than that, actually. And then the CBC reruns as like a greatest hits package, yeah. the, the original story you no did. Unintended. And you tried to get in the middle of it and say he changed his voice. They, and they, they... No, no, I didn't get in the middle of it. I didn't know what was going on. I just watched uh-huh. it the night it was on. They didn't tell me either. Uh-huh. They didn't tell me. They didn't tell Gordon Stewart, who was the producer. I was the... Like, so, I mean, I could see where they're coming from. I mean, oh, yeah, if, no, it, I if it was safe to run 30 years ago, it's... Oh, you know, absolutely. Then, then, and, and, and that's what they're saying in their answer to Kirby's lawyer. And yeah. I think basically they're offering to take it offline where they put it online. But, of course, it's just as dangerous to the Camisos who now pretend to be total legitimate. And he was the hitman. He talks about all the yeah. murders and, and, and the ordered by them and, and, and some that he did for the RCMP on, you know, that he didn't go through. In my so, experience, removing content from the Internet is not a good way to stop people from viewing no, it. No, it's, it's available. Once it's out there, especially for months. So, no, the only interesting thing is, he, you know, th- that it did jeopardize his security and they should have done some update and then we would have 
brought to their attention because Ron Haggard, who was the executive producer, standards have gone down a lot. You know, in the old days, Ron Haggard was a really wonderful guy, but he put you through the grinder to get a story on the air, mm-hmm. gave you every possible reason why it shouldn't be on the air. Now just about anything gets on the air. You know, I, I think one of the worst examples I've seen on the Fifth Estate recently was uh, the Ford story that they felt they had to run. They didn't have to run a Ford story, and, and it was so weak. Yeah. And they had this guy who was actually being charged with having a gun and being a member of one of the Somali gangs. They had him saying, these, these guys with, uh, I love this, you know it's the same person when they say this, these guys, swarthy guys with gold chains and big cars started coming into their hood. Yeah. And that's supposed to be the Mafia. And Well, that's ridiculous. I yeah. mean, if the Mafia really were putting pressure on a Somali gang, they'd do it very directly. They wouldn't be coming well, in. Well, and the description is offensive unto itself I know, and as they a used shorthand. It in the globe recently. Know. Yeah. Uh, uh, about that, this Vaughn uh, hit. Just a, a week ago or so. Yeah, and yeah. it's total nonsense. And yeah. now it turns out it was a black hit man. Yeah. Uh, well, it, 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 well, it the whole thing is very confusing. In the shorthand they use in the code, they said it's a dark skinned hitman, which is a different thing than saying it was no, a he black, was black. hitman. I saw his picture, yes. Okay. Right. And, and then, yeah, some of the neighbors saying, oh, there are these guys with gold chains been coming to this place. Well, for- you know, I mean, to be honest, the guys with gold chains and the fancy cars generally aren't mob. I mean, mob people, senior mob people don't go around like that. Yeah. Very few. They're kind of wannabes or hangarounds, as we call them. You know, I mean, they're not— uh, uh, My Uncle Mo wore gold chains and had fancy well, exactly. cars. He, he was in the and kosher poultry business. Any, any uh, Marvin Elkin, he called himself very low level. He yeah. was a driver. You know, for various people. He always wears gold chains and talks the talk, you know. Yeah. He's the furthest thing from a mob boss. Are you investigating crimes while police are investigating crimes? Yeah, sure, sometimes. Or are you sitting down when a gangster wants to write his memoirs and you're there to take the stories down? It's all of these things, you know what I mean? When we did Connections and when I wrote my book on Mob Rule, I think if you read critically, say, Mob Rule and then read, uh, say, a book on Papalia, you'll see the difference is that I have actual mob people and people very close to the mobster talking and, and the other one doesn't. Mm-hmm. I won't mention any names. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's journalists have gotten a bit lazy. You know, they pretty much take from the police what they can and from the public domain, which includes whatever I've written in, over the years. Or from the courts. I mean, it's just and there. The, and the courts, of course, and that's fine. That's yeah. fine. Courts are very important and, and they don't necessarily attribute everything, you know. Uh, I mean, they'll give you a vague you know, thing in the back, but they don't attribute everything. And so um, I was just thinking last night, I was thinking of coming to see you, of all the stories and people I've met over the years, especially the last 15 years, that haven't become a book or a television documentary. And I've done a lot of television documentaries because I just couldn't sell it or it just didn't gel. Uh, one was a Colombian um, drug dealer who worked undercover with Bill Blair. Most most things don't pan out into a book or, or a film, and I don't necessarily want to do that unless it's worthy of it, you know. Like Marvin was one I met in 85. Marvin Elkin. Yeah. I met him in 85, and he wanted me to do a book. I, I found out he was... He called me after an article. I did a cover article for Toronto Life on Paul Volpe after he was killed. And he called me and said, uh, hey, kid, this is Marvin uh, Volpe. He didn't come back from Haiti on January 2nd, 1963, but July 10th, and I picked him up at the airport. Oh, well, okay. Uh, so he became a good source of mine. I figured out eventually that he was also working with the OPP. Uh-huh. And so he was uh, an informant. 
But he was also running his own operations, criminal operations. He was very much in the boxing world. Anyway, he wanted me to do a book about him, and I just couldn't sell it to my thing. I mean, he was an interesting low-level criminal. He grew up in an Italian mob family, uh, and he was a really interesting guy, but uh, it just didn't— didn't play. It's interesting the way you pursue this. It's like, can the story sell? Is uh, you know, it, it's a different thing than being like a, a beat reporter. Just here's what happened today. You're, you're trying to find. You got to have a taker. You got to have the fifth estate. Got to buy a documentary. You got to. Well, I don't go to the fifth estate much anymore. I did in the after I left in the. I worked at the fifth estate for three years. I yeah, don't know if I mentioned that too. Uh, but I, by the end of the eighties, I, I didn't much bring it to there. Or W five done some W five things too. Fifth State has to be a whole hour now. Who's even doing that anymore? Who's doing the crime stories well, nobody. in Nobody. That's the problem. You see, the whole attention span, the whole in-depth reporting has changed. Yeah. You know, it's all the way the news cycle works nowadays is it's, it's very short. You're and working on something and you get information that the cops might not have. What do you have to do? What are the ethical considerations when you're investigating crime as a reporter? Well, you don't have to share it with the cops unless it's, you know, a plot, a murder plot about to happen. I mean, that would be it for any source talking to you if you were dropping dimes to the police. Oh, yeah, and yet, yeah, yeah. if you know something about an unsolved crime... Uh, Everyone plays all sides. I mean, I know... Everyone pretends they don't, especially journalists. Journalists share information with the police all the time, and yeah. then they get and exchange things, and they end with gangsters. And gangsters share information with the police all the time. Almost all of them did. Volpe was a source for the RCMP. They didn't want to have him officially recruited, but he was a source. And he was the boss of the Mafia of Toronto. Isn't that a very dangerous thing to do as a gangster? Yeah, but it's done all the time. It was done in the United States all the time, and it's done here. The, some of the heads of the Teamsters were working for the FBI. And mm-hmm. In fact, the most notorious gangster, uh, Bulger, was definitely an agent for the FBI. You know, the Boston. Well, uh, he killed all these people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's pretty bad, but that's was that he, uh, the Departed? That was Nicholson's character. That's right. Yeah, and he was just convicted of many murders, and there was a story about him just a couple of days ago. He wrote this um, very nice note to a couple of girls in high school, yeah. saying, "Don't use my career as a, as a role model. I'm a terrible role model. I went bad. You know, and my brother was a good one because my brother became president of the Senate. Blah blah blah." Uh-huh president of the University of Massachusetts. In other words, he's, he seems to have uh, regretted. The path. Uh, well, I don't believe it. But anyway, the, the point is uh, that he has got a lot of publicity. And he, he actually hid 10 years, but he was working for the FBI. That's the whole point. And, yeah. And it's a big story in Boston that he was working for the FBI. And there was a corrupt FBI guy in there, too, to top it all off. So it was, everyone was playing all sides. The Departed... While it exaggerates all that, and you remember that was very interesting. Every some people are paying three sides. Of yeah, that, you know that's a little bit complicated. I found it even complicated to think, but there are that's what was going on really. Those stories become American gangsters, uh, and and the journalists who cover them, they sell the rights to make movies out of that. I can't really think of a lot of um, fictional depictions of Canadian gang activity. No, do, do you sell the rights to your stuff? Does that happen? Or well, or? I just uh, a year and a half ago sold the rights to the Rocco Perry book, which I wrote in '87. And uh, <clears throat> Rocco and Bessie. Yeah. And uh, he's never been made into a feature film. Now, we they did do a docudrama for a series called Mob Stories. It was a eight-part series uh, for arts and entertainment. No, it was for the History Channel. Yeah. Uh, which is a bit of a joke, the History Channel, because they, they're not really history. Not for a while, no. No, and they, they weren't even then. I mean, they changed an opening scene in the Volpe one. 
And I said, you know, this didn't happen this way. Yeah. It was a scene where Volpe was at a hotel in, I don't know, 61 or something, 59, I can't remember what year. And there was a robbery happening and a guard was um, stabbed. And Volpe came to the rescue of the guard and apprehended the the criminal and then disappeared. Uh-huh. And he was a hero, a yeah. mystery hero, picture in the paper, mystery hero, Paul Volpe. And they, the way they played it in the as the opening of the history thing was that he was meeting with gangsters and this was part of a mob feud. It had uh-huh. nothing to do with the mob. Yeah. And I, I told him that. And they said, no, the History Channel likes this story better. They took <laughs> <laughs> Give me a break. They took their liberties. Yeah. Yeah. They take a lot of liberty, so it's not really history. Do you think, I mean, you know, and that, that's pretty low rent when it comes to, like, um, you know, fictional crime on the screen. You know, why haven't we seen the big film it's a good question. about our gangsters? It's a good we, question. Is it a Canadian thing where we feel, oh, a Canadian mob, that can't be anything. I mean, we, well, we, we, we got the, we have bikers it. here. We have a connection to the, the birth of, of the mob with the, with the bootleggers here. We're leaving it to the Americans. Like, the Canadians start to show up in, you know, Boardwalk Empire because it's a, it's a part of that story. But right. we, we don't seem to be very interested in telling that part of our history. Part of the Boardwalk Empire thing was Rocco Perry, who was feeding booze. Uh-huh. Those cans that pop up in the beginning credits. You know, they're coming Canadian from Rocco whiskey. Perry and Bronfman's and various other people. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, we don't. And I remember after I wrote The King of the Mob, uh, Sid Edelman, who at the time was the star um, movie and entertainment critic, said mm-hmm. there should be a film about Rocco Perry uh, and Bessie and his second common-law wife, Annie, uh, Annie Newman. She was a character, too. Still hasn't happened. I mean, I sold the rights to the Rocco Perry thing about a year and a half ago. It hasn't happened, although I was then approached because at that point the Bonnie and Clyde thing was big and women gangsters, so they really wanted to focus on Bessie. And <clears throat> I got three different people that wanted to do it, yeah, including someone from Hollywood. So I just basically went with what I considered the best, which is a local company uh, run by a guy named Peter Gentili who did the mob stories. But whether he'll get the feature filmed, I hope he does. Yeah. Uh, who knows? Um, but that was that just became trendy female gangsters, you know. And it's sort of interesting that Bessie was so important. I mean, she would have assassinations. I read the file on her murder, which is still secret. It's not available. How would you read it? I read it because the OPP let me read it. Uh-huh. And I couldn't even take um, notes photocopies. Or, well, yeah. I, I, I took the notes afterwards. But right. uh, anyway, in that file, everybody in Rocco Perry's gang had a reason to kill her. They all hated her because she was such the tough lady. Right. She was the, the one. Hard crime that, to solve. If you got she it. was the one. He was Mr. Nice Guy. Yeah. And people, I remember this guy who rang me up to threaten me. Eventually, I, I, he said, yeah, I told, oh, I didn't tell you the story. Uh, this guy threatened me uh, after that book came out, um, called me up to say, I'm no rat. Uh, this is Milty Goldheart. I'm no rat. And no one calls me a rat and gets away with it. Yeah, I said, I, I didn't really mean to say you were a rat. I, I said it was the RCMP uh, said that you were cooperating for a few months. He said, yes, I did, but they tricked me. And uh-huh. He told me the whole story about how they tricked him, and so I got that into the paperback. Uh-huh. Uh, and then he Better me, book, possibly saving yourself uh, yeah, that right. sleep with a fish. And unfortunately, he died of a heart attack before I could do a really thorough uh-huh. camera interview with him, but uh, he would have been a great Fifth Estate piece or W5. But he told me he worked for Annie Newman, which was the second common-law wife of – and uh, he said, oh, she was 
incredible body, you'd want to fuck her, but boy, she was a hunk of shit to work for. Uh-huh. Tough as nails again. She was someone that came in through, through uh, Bessie uh-huh. um, and his second common-law wife, and she ran the bootlegging in reverse because it was um, they had to import booze from Chicago uh, to Canada because the, the restrictions were so tight. So, so um, she she did that, and she did the gold frauds uh, in the forty in the thirties and forties. Certain kind of crime reporter, especially if you're a columnist who uh, takes a high-minded moral position as you write about this stuff, can have a very very successful career. And I can think of some newspaper columnists who've done very well sitting in courtrooms and just writing about the Pierre atrocious Burton things. Is a good example. He was he was a. But you've been a freelancer, most of my life. Yeah. Uh, why? And you've had to do other things. The only, the only full-time job I ever had, other than freelancing, was at the Fifth Estate for about three years. Uh, well, that's not true. I worked for another company called Stoneway Productions. Do you know that one? Yeah. Um, in fact, I'm having lunch with someone from there today. But basically, I was freelancing. Mm-hmm. And I've always been freelance. Well, you have more uh, independence, uh, more flexibility as a freelancer. You don't necessarily have the money. I was lucky that I, I mean, the reason I'm, able to still operate, and I don't operate as much now, I'm going to be 69 in 10 days, um, but I invested some of the money from from my uh, first few books, particularly Mob Rule, which was a big hit in 85, into real estate, and that made me a little money, you know, so I can, I, I you know, my, my retirement will be comfortable enough. I read that you're a landlord and a used book <laughs> dealer. Well, I... I not a landlord anymore because I just sold the only apartment I, I had left for renting out just a, a little while ago. But you know, I bought it for fifty thousand and sold it for two hundred and ten. So you know, that's how it goes. Bookstore, yes, that was not one of my great commercial successes. I, I, I ran an online bookstore for five years, and that was that was pretty good. Yeah, the physical bookstore. I came sort of the, the time I opened was around the time of nine uh, eleven, and it was in the Ryerson neighborhood, and. All the tourism just dried up. Yeah. And it sort of broke even, but it wasn't worth it. Yeah. It wasn't worth the hassles. I had an opening party where I had Chucky Yanover. I had Marvin Elkin, a couple of gang. I invited some cops, but they didn't show up. Uh-huh. So the gangsters came. In fact, Chucky tried to pick up one of my crime writer friends. Uh, yeah. She's uh, now very famous, but I won't mention her name. Uh uh, she, he offered her a ride home on his motorcycle. Uh-huh. But he's that kind of guy, you know, Yeah, full of uh, gumption. any rate, uh, the bookstore was fun, and I love, you know, I still have too many books in my place. I have about 35,000 because I used to teach literature before I became a, uh, a freelance reporter. I was teaching 18th century literature. Do you ever write crime literature? I mean, it seems like a lot, well, of, uh, no. a lot of crime writers want to be Dashiell Hammett. I don't, you know. No, I didn't write crime literature, but you know, a lot of the writers in the, in the 18th century, I was in 18th century literature, they weren't the writers I was writing about, but a lot of the writers were crime writers. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you think of Daniel Defoe, uh, Henry Fielding, who was the Justice of the Peace, a lot of their periodical writing, even Dr. Johnson, were crime stories. I mean, uh, and it was whatever, it, Grub Street, as it was called in the 18th century, was as, was as bad as anything in the 1920s in, in North America uh, or the yellow journalism in, you know, the turn of the century. It was, it was pretty big. Yeah. And crime reporting was, was a big deal. 
as it was here in Canada in the 20s. It doesn't seem to be now. The globe kind of— Yeah, they don't do much of it at all. And they but don't, again, they don't put much emphasis on the, on the uh, say, the Somali versus Jamaican gangs. It's very interesting. In Toronto here, we have black organized crime. They have a unit on black organized crime, but they don't call it that anymore. Of course, in Asian organized crime, but they don't— Political correctness has a lot to do with yeah. this. They often don't even identify— People as being Somali or uh, in a Somali gang or Haitian gangs are very big. The Toronto Star didn't have that problem. but uh, No, the Toronto Star didn't. You're right. And uh, uh, who was the great guy there that used to cover gangs? Uh, Nick Prawn. But crime is at an all-time low. Yes. Oh, yeah. Maybe and, that's and organized crime is. You know, in Toronto, I would say the mafia is, in spite of the efforts of certain writers to promote it, uh, uh, mafia is pretty low-keyed in Toronto. Yeah. It has been since Volpe was killed. I mean, there isn't a lot of mafia crime. There is a new group of Andrangheta people that came, but they're quietly living in the suburbs of Vaughan mm-hmm. and Woodbridge and wherever. Uh, they're not so much involved in crime here in, in the city. The inner city crime... Here in Toronto is black organized crime, Asian organized crime, Russian, uh, all the other newer groups. Uh, you know, you have girl ops run by Vietnamese gangs. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have um, Somali gangs and drugs. And, of course, these are things, these are services and products that people want, certain people want. And that's why it's when they legalize drugs finally, which I think might happen in my lifetime. I'm going to be 69 and... 10 days, it may or may not happen, but that will really hurt organized crime. Yeah. And it will hurt those gangs. Yeah. As well, all, it's, it's part, of, part of the story that doesn't get the, uh, a lot of focus is that this is a part of the immigrant story of North America. Right, People it is. come in and yeah. a certain segment, people start legitimate businesses, people start corner stores, and some people do this kind of stuff. It was, it they was, fill in the blanks that legitimate society doesn't want to— It was a chapter in Mob Rule, uh, The Theory of Ethnic Succession in Organized Crime by Francis Iani, a sociologist. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, you could say that. And certainly the Vietnamese came in after the Chinese, and there's a newer generation of Chinese from the mainland. Yeah. And the Somalis, who are at the lowest of the low in the gangs, that's why these people at Ford was associated with the Somali gangsters that were not very good. I mean, they weren't, and they're getting killed off every time they go out to Alberta to do drugs, uh-huh. and even here. They're just not very high up there. The Jamaican and the Haitians, the Haitian gangs really run the street in Montreal now. Right. More so than the Rizzuto family. Uh-huh. This is really something when you think about it. You well, know. it's that process of legitimization, I guess, uh, through the years. Yeah, and, and Rizzuto's two uh, children are lawyers. Yeah. Don't, surviving. The other one was a gangster, but he was murdered, sorry. Um uh, he was murdered. So uh, I would say the Rizzuto family is, still exists, and I'm not sure who the boss is. I don't think we'll know for a while. There's all sorts of theories, but it's not. none of that is as powerful as it used to be, not in, when Controni ran his family, uh, not when Volpe ran Tor- Toronto. And nobody has run Toronto yeah. in many, many, many years, decades, really. Favorite gangster in Canada? All time? I have to say Rocco and Bessie, but Rocco, because he was such a nice... I mean, he'd go give silver dollars to the kids in the ghetto here in Toronto in the ward. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a prince, as, as Milton Goldhart said of him. He was a driver for them. That's where my grandfather was born in the ward. That's sort of, really sort of where ward, we are now, yeah. more like university, I guess. Uh, yeah, we're not far from the ward, but the ward was the melting pot for everything. And you had Chinese uh, massage parlors, you had Jewish bootleggers, you had uh, Italian gangsters. And I remember when I was writing my bit about the ward, there's a book out about recently, a 
various excerpts. I don't know if mine's in there, but basically this artist told me, Florence Vale, that uh, they, they, they would go to the Italian bootleggers, you know, back in the 30, 50s in the ward. You know, these, this was a great melting pot and everyone knew everyone. And a lot of people came out of that area, construction people, um, judges, all sorts of people who later became prominent, and they kept their connections with the criminal element, you should say. It's, hmm. that, that was sort of a lot of fodder for our connection series back in the uh, 70s. Hard to believe it was so long ago. Life goes by very fast sometimes. James, thank you very much. Thank you. That was your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me always at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all. I respond when I can. I'm on Twitter at Jesse Brown, and the show's website is canadalandshow.com. The crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. I make the show with Katie Jensen. The next episode of Canada Land Commons will be up on Tuesday. The next episode of Shortcuts up on Thursday. If you like this show, please support it.